Please be seated. I can tell you that it is so nice to be back in the physical presence of one another. I could um, sing you uh, my tale of woe about how hard it is to preach to a camera alone. But at the same time, I am also just mystified that we have this technology that has propelled us over the course of the last few years to stay connected to one another while we have also tried to keep one another safe. So um, while I, I sing myself a, a song of sorrow on the days that I preach to the camera alone, um, I also marvel at the fact that we are able to be connected. This morning, I want to talk about one of my favorites, James Baldwin. Many of you, uh, no doubt, have read Baldwin's work. I was introduced to Baldwin in my uh, late teens, early 20s, when I was walking the mean streets of the University of Texas as a history major and an English minor. And I encountered Baldwin in that perfect time in my life, where that worldview that I had built as a child was appropriately crumbling down and becoming something that was my own, something that was also wider and different, more expansive, deeper, more beautiful, well beyond the experience that um, I had growing up in Houston and Austin in the 70s and the 80s. Most likely, you know, Baldwin was born in the 1920s, the early 20s in Harlem, New York. He was born to a single mother who, just a few years after his birth, was married to uh, an evangelical Baptist pastor. Uh, that family went on to have many more children, so Baldwin was the first child of a long line of evangelical Baptist children his teachers, when he was a student, um, recognized very quickly that he was one of the brightest lights in the room and spent a lot of time encouraging Baldwin on his speaking and his writing. And in his, in his mid-teens, he has a brief flirtation with the evangelical pastorate, becoming a preacher and quickly abandons that after he graduates from high school. Most likely you have a sense also that Baldwin, um, Baldwin doesn't, Baldwin, though he writes about America and he writes about racism and homophobia in America in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, he does that as an expatriate. He spends the majority of his adult life in France led there by author Richard Wright. They have a falling out um, in Paris, but eventually when Wright becomes older, they find themselves connected one to another again. Baldwin became popular over the course of the last few years um, with the release of the documentary, I Am Not Your Negro. I don't know if any of you have seen that beautiful piece that unfinished piece that Baldwin began to create before his death in the 80s that gets finished. And I can't remember if it was HBO or Showtime, but there are many interviews with leaders of civil rights in America and across the globe. And we find interviews with Baldwin as well. His intellect, 
is rapier sharp. He never lets his foot off the gas in holding America, in holding us accountable for the condition of black Americans in America. His thought and his writing is still so present-minded for our own context today. I was reminded this week when reading the gospel of, of my very favorite short story written by Baldwin, a story that no doubt some of you have read, a story called Sonny's Blues. Anybody? Sonny's Blues. Um, the story is about two African-American brothers, no doubt somewhat autobiographical, born in Harlem, raised in the 30s and 40s by um, a, a, a two-parent home whose dad eventually dies and then raised finally by a strong single mother. The older brother, who is the narrator of the story, the voice that you hear telling the story all throughout Sonny's Blues, is typical of the birth order. Responsible, conscientious, sensitive to the needs of his mother and his little brother, stepping in to take on that parenting role as his mother ages and then eventually dies. But the little brother, Sonny, is more carefree, more passionate, and has a deep desire to live a life of depth and meaning. And all throughout the story, you can hear of the conflict and the tension that exists between these two brothers as they seek to pursue the life that they feel propelled to pursue. The story opens with a measure of conflict between the two brothers. You get a sense that there has been a, a separation, a fracture of their relationship. And yet the older brother, in a, in a time of grief at the loss of a third child, begins to long for a connection with his little brother who he has been separated from because Sonny, though he has pursued um, his passion in becoming a wonderful jazz pianist, he has also become addicted to heroin. The story goes on to tell how Sonny ultimately recovers from his addiction to heroin, but his recovery takes a toll on his life because in order to recover, he separates himself from the music. And when older brother and Sonny are brought back together, Sonny has a deep desire to introduce his brother to the environment that makes his heart sing. So older brother and Sonny set out one evening to a jazz club. The narrator's voice, the older brother's voice says, when Sonny walks into the room, and let's be mindful, he hasn't been in this room for at least a year. He hasn't played the piano for at least a year. When Sonny walks into the room, he's treated as though he has royal blood in his veins. This is Sonny's community. This is the place where Sonny belongs. This is a, a community that recognizes his God-given gifts and honors 
his eccentricities in seeking to pursue those deep gifts. Sonny eventually is coaxed back to the stage by an older mentoring jazz musician named Creole. Creole is a stand-up bass player in the little group where Sonny comes to play the piano. And it's immediately clear that Sonny's rusty. He's forgotten. He's forgotten in his recovery. He's forgotten in his distance from practicing the piano how to speak in concert with the other musicians. And Baldwin describes the scene of Creole trying to coax Sonny back into the water. And then there's this beautiful line. It's my favorite in all of literature where he says, Creole, Creole was trying to teach Sonny that deep water and drowning are not the same thing. I love that line. And when I read this story that we have from Luke's Jesus, I couldn't help but think of that idea of deep water and drowning are not the same thing. We meet Luke's Jesus in this curious moment. You can look in your bulletin and see that we're in the fifth chapter of Luke. So we're very early in the story of Luke's Jesus because Luke has a lot of nativity narrative. All that Christmas jazz is all from Luke's gospel primarily. So Jesus's ministry is just starting. And if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, Jesus rolls back into his hometown, goes to his home church, unrolls the scroll of Isaiah, reads that scroll, gives commentary to the scroll, and the people who witness this sermon are like, wow, that's the most profound explanation we've ever heard of this scroll. And then in two beats, the story goes, wait a minute, isn't that Joseph's kid? And then in the very next beat, they're like, let's get him. And they're trying to throw him off a cliff. It's such a curious moment in the story. And so then Jesus has this kind of mystical escape from that, that lynch mob. It, the story says he just kind of walks through as if he's some Obi-Wan Kenobi Jedi. He just moves through the crowd untouched and then goes on to preach in other places. And this morning we find Luke's Jesus at the shore of the lake of Gennesaret. It's such a cool story because Jesus is popular. Like his reputation is out and people want to hear what he has to say. He's standing on this lake shore and they begin to press in. 
They begin to move toward him, hoping that he would give them some word to hang on. And then he does this kind of crazy move that no other preacher or teacher would do. Rather than walking through the crowd and ascending the bank of the lake and taking a a higher position that a preacher or teacher would do in that day, the story says that he turns to the water. He gets in a boat. He has Simon row him out a little ways, and then he sits down to teach. It's this crazy moment in the story where Jesus is trying to teach us, trying to demonstrate to us that the spiritual life, the moves that we make in this spiritual life, in order for us to grow spiritually, the moves that we make, the moves that are required are counterintuitive. He tells Simon, put out, to the deep water and drop your net. Deep water and drowning are not the same thing. The spiritual life oftentimes demands maneuvers that are counterintuitive. The kingdom of the world and the kingdom of heaven don't require the same actions. If we're trying to live boldly into the spiritual life, when the world demands us to be powerful, the move that Jesus invites us to make is weakness. We hear that in Paul's words. Power is made perfect in weakness. Maybe we know them through the the translation that Brene Brown makes, the power of vulnerability, of becoming weaker. Life tells us, the kingdom of the world life tells us, that we should get stronger and harder and stronger and harder. But the spiritual life makes demands that we get softer and softer and softer. Church, put out into the deep water and drop your net. Engage in those counterintuitive moves. Just practice it a little bit. Maybe you feel that power rising up in you and you remind yourself to soften. Perhaps you come into conflict with someone and you feel like you need to be stronger and harder. Jesus invites us to soften. In fact, with that counterintuitive wisdom of turning the other cheek, All throughout the Gospels, we are reminded that deep water and drowning are not the same thing. Rather, that is the life we were built for, we were made for. Amen.
Please stand as we say the Nicene Creed together. We believe in one God, Father, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. <clears throat> we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. I ask your prayers for God's people throughout the world, for our presiding Bishop Michael, for our Bishop Paul Gordon, and for this gathering and for all ministers and people 